Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Feels like a lot's already happened. How many of you guys are ready for a sermon? This morning, I'm going to continue in this new series. It's going to be a short series. It's going to take us to the next couple months. And it's built around what's traditionally been known as the seven deadly sins. It's a list of seven distortions of the human heart and spirit that lead to all the other problems we see, all the other sins. And it's not a biblical or canonical list in that this list doesn't appear exactly in this form anywhere in Scripture, but it's the result of years and years of searching the heart, spending time with God in the desert wilderness, trying to understand what leads to the things that break apart faith, that break apart Christian community. And while I would not give it the same level of authority as a list that, that a list appearing in the Bible would have, I still believe it is an incredibly helpful guide for us to understand and be watchful in our own spirits as to what gives rise to so much of the brokenness that befalls us. The title of the message this morning, I don't know if there's any way for us to get this thing on, is it? Well, maybe that's it. We'll see. Okay. The title of the message is Pride and Humility. If you've been at our church for more than a week, you'll know that I don't spend any time on clever titles. Okay, I'm just going to tell you what the sermon's about. That's all it's going to be. Uh, if you want cool titles, go to the library. The first and most important item on this list of the seven deadly sins is pride. I want to read for you a passage, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, that I think really captures this issue of pride very well. And I, I can't, guys, I don't know if anyone can come and help me get this, this monitor started up. Thank you. Here's the word of God. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
I don't know if you're paying attention, but that's not an easy passage of scripture to get through because I think all of us want to identify with one of the characters. But if the truth is revealed, I think it will be shown that we actually identify more with the other character in that story. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful classic book, Mere Christianity, dedicates an entire chapter to this subject. And he opens chapter 8 of his book this way. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world, don't worry about it, Joe, it's fine. We'll get through it. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. He's, of course, talking about pride, and he's making a very important statement here that pride is one of those things that is ugly universally, that when we see arrogance, haughtiness, self-absorption, in other people, we all hate it, don't we? Is there anyone who loves a, a person who's just full of themselves? Any big fan of truly arrogant, prideful people? I didn't think so. None of us like seeing that in others. But here's the thing about pride. It's really hard to see it in ourselves. It really is. I didn't understand this fully until even just a couple weeks ago when I spent a week in Philadelphia with some of my oldest friends and invited them to speak into my life at a level I had never done before, thinking, oh, it's going to be fine. They've told me every hard thing they could tell me. And boy, do they have stuff in their suitcase they hadn't taken out before. And I saw things about myself I wasn't really ready to see, and things that I don't think I ever could have seen, apart from my friends showing me the truth. See, all the other sins on this list are kind of easy to identify in us, right? I mean, if you're envious, you know it. If you're greedy, if you're lazy, if you're angry, if you're whatever that last one is, if you're, if you're gluttonous, those are not things that are ambiguous. You can see it in others, but you can also see it in yourself. And in fact, I think most of us are willing to admit, you know what, I do probably do a little too much of this, or I do a little of that, and I'm stuck here, and I'm stuck there. We're ready to admit those things. But it's only with pride that it seems so difficult for us to come to grips with the fact that there is pride at a level we're probably not ready to face in our own spirits. That was my experience, and I'm going to tell you that when you see it, it will actually set you free. But until you see it, it will hinder things in you like you cannot imagine. Very few people admit to pride, but they'll admit readily to most of those other things. So I want to talk about this spiritual vice of pride, and there's so much that could be said. I'm going to only make two observations from this story that Jesus told to try to help us see through a story, a picture, what pride spiritually really is and what it does to the human heart. The first observation is that pride is self-righteousness. Okay, Pride is self-righteousness. Listen to how this parable opens up. 
He told them this parable, and here's who he's talking to. To people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others as a result with contempt. Let me ask you a question. In the grand scheme of the human race, would you consider yourself a righteous person? If we had to divide any given room into the good guys and the bad guys, would you consider yourself one of the good people? I'm not trying to set you up in a trap and go, see, aha, you're all bad. That's not the point. The point is, I'm asking you, how do you identify yourself? How do you measure yourself? You're standing with other people. You're standing with God. How do you gauge your moral character? Your righteousness. Everybody has a way of answering that question. Am I one of the good people? Am I righteous in the eyes of God? Where does your assurance And your confidence in that answer come from? What do you trust to point to the fact that, yes, indeed, I am one of the good ones? This Pharisee begins praying this way. And I love that Jesus throws in. He's praying really to himself. So what we're getting is a window into what he thinks about his own heart. This Pharisee had every reason to feel pretty good about himself because when it came to the things that God wanted people to do in terms of religious faithfulness, he was really, really faithful. In fact, he says he fasted not just once a week, which would have been pretty faithful, but he exceeded that. He doubled it, and he fasted twice a week. I can tell you that for years when I was in seminary and in the early years of my ministry, I fasted every Thursday, and I'd be lying if I said I enjoyed it. Every Wednesday night, I would gorge myself until 12 midnight. I would just be so full of food, I was sick of food. And then I'd go into Thursday. And even then, some Thursdays, I would wrestle all day with the temptation to drive through McDonald's and just get a a small fry and eat it in hiddenness and shame behind the dumpster, just hoping no one from church drove by. You know... That giving up your money, and not just a gesture, but a tenth, a tithe, is not an easy... So he's doing very well, excessively, two of the things that remain the hardest for Christians to do today. At least if statistics bear out, you know that very few people in the church tithe, and very few people in the church fast so regularly. If you were this guy, you might have these kind of thoughts in your mind. Like, look, hey... Majority of the church does not come out to this, this gathering or that meeting. I do. They don't say yes to these things or those things. I do. What do you point to as evidence that you are righteous in the eyes of God? This man pointed to the things he was doing because they were in part things God expected of us. And then just to hedge his bets, he did not just what God required, but a little extra just to make sure. The problem was not with what he was doing well. Jesus found no fault in the things that he already affirmed in himself. He didn't say, ha, this guy just fasts twice a week. He should be fasting three. This was already a good thing, and he was right to point to it and say, this is one of the evidences that I'm trying to be among the righteous. The problem was that because he had things he was doing well, He hid behind them and did not or would not or could not look at the darkness that was also there. 
The pride of self-righteousness is that we settle upon the things we have done well and say, that is my standing, my argument before God. We used to do this thing called evangelism explosion. Does, is anyone old enough to remember? <laughs> right. You have to be a certain age to remember evangelism explosion, but that's what my evangelism course in seminary was. We went door to door through our town, knocking on people, hello, and then we'd ask a couple questions. Hey, listen, uh, I'm sorry to bother you at dinner, but if you were to die right now, <laughs> that's a great opening question when you're knocking on someone's door. If you were to die right now, and then here's what you ask, and you were standing before St. Peter at the pearly gates, and he's like, why should I let you in? What answer would you give? What, what would you say to God for the reason why you should be led in to eternal bliss and security, to paradise? And most people would answer, well, you know, look, I don't kick children in the head when I walk past. I'm, I pay my taxes. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I'm a decent neighbor. I mow my lawn once a week. What do you want from me? When you really add it all up, I've done more, more good things than bad things. Sure, some of the bad is pretty bad, but I've done a lot of really good stuff too. And that was to demonstrate that the vast majority of human beings point to their own works as a reason why they should be acceptable to God. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that many in the church also operate under this idea. I want you to think about how true that is, that we often point to our good deeds as an offset to our bad deeds. Just like you pay a carbon offset fee because you're burning through, through carbon, you're, you're creating tons of emissions, so you pay a little extra money. It's like that. The way carbon offset works, we're saying, look, I know I've done bad, but look at all the good and stop criticizing me for my failings. Pride makes us defensive to the point of saying, stop harping on where I need to grow and look at what I've already done. At the end of the day, pride is self-righteousness because instead of trusting God who says, I will declare you righteous and acceptable to me. On the worst day of your life, if you trust Jesus, you can still approach me. It's hard for us to trust that. I want you to think about how differently you feel in terms of your spiritual confidence when you've done really good stuff. Like when you come on your way home from a mission trip after you've led 16 people to Christ, think about how good you feel, how you're expecting to hit all the green lights on the way home from the airport, and your children will be standing at the door bowing, hello, Father, thank you for serving the Lord and coming home to us. You're expecting all this good fortune. You're expecting God to have your back. You're not going to get sick for the next year. Why? You're expecting that because you've done all these good things and you believe that that creates karma. Not a Christian or biblical concept, but one that operates and lurks in the dark recesses of even the Christian mind all the time. And think on the other side, on the flip side, how insecure do you feel when you've really screwed up? Lord, I'm so sick of myself. I can't even repent of this sin. I think about what I did and I hate me more than you probably hate me. Am I ever going to be done with this? Why don't I ever change? And in that moment, when you're feeling really low, how secure do you feel with God? How ready are you for that to be the day you die and stand before the pearly gates? And God says, hey, welcome, porn addict. Come on in. Why do you want... How good do you feel on that day about your standing 
with God. The gospel is crazy talk. It paints a picture of God and the reality we live in that is so counter to every other thing that works in our universe. In every other place, we get what we work for. We get what we deserve. And yet the gospel tells us that's not the way it is. Your righteousness and mine comes only through the finished work of Jesus that he gives as a gift to us. And yet it's hard to trust that. And so instead we say, no, no, I get it. But I'm going to point to some stuff I also did. Look, I did this and I did that. That should count for something, shouldn't it? We know the biblical answer. Philippians 3, verse 9, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what I believe Jesus is trying to say through this story. That pride is not the guy who says, I am the most righteous person in this room. That's not the kind of pride he is pointing out. And I don't think that's the kind of pride most of us are guilty of, right? Is there anyone in this room who, in a righteousness pageant, would try to put themselves up as a likely winner? It's okay if you are. I mean, I, I want to see, because we're looking for new small group leaders. No? Okay, I didn't think so. I, I wouldn't be in that line at all. I'm a mess, and I'm your pastor, so you guys are in trouble. Here's the thing. Pride is not the guy who says, I am the most righteous person in here. Pride is the person who says, I am righteous because I've done righteous things. The reason I am among the righteous is because I have done that which is righteous at least more times than that which is unrighteous. That I have accrued credit to my account by the good that I've done. Now that's theological, but in practice here's also what it is that I won't let anyone point out my flaws or try to correct me or pull me where I don't want to go because I'm okay with myself the way I am. I'm not perfect, sure. I'm not the best guy in this room, but stop trying to make me go places. Stop challenging me. Stop trying to sharpen me. I'm good enough for myself right now. Leave me alone. Pride makes us imminently unteachable. It makes us unable to hear anyone else. And maybe you don't think you're proud, but I I wonder if you have the courage to ask your friends or your loved ones, your spouse, the way I've been asking lately, hey, do I frustrate you in some way? Do you find it really difficult to correct me or to get me to see anything from another point of view? Because some of us are that person. The people closest to us say, I cannot remember one time in the last 10 years where I changed your mind on anything significant. You are so stubborn, so self-justified. You believe that you are in your present state good enough for everything and no one can tell you there's room for growth and it is breaking our hearts and it's breaking our relationship. When we point to the good that we've done to defend ourselves against other people's attempts to help us move towards Christ-likeness. That's pride. It's self-righteousness, and it is blocking you, keeping you from some of the greatest spiritual growth you could experience. 
You know, part of the reason that we all remember so fondly what it was like in youth group or college or way back when, when we were first coming to know Jesus and we remember those days with such fondness. One of the difference makers is back in those days, we hadn't run enough laps around the track to be so self-righteous and proud and resistant. We knew right away, we're dumb idiots. We don't know any. We're too young. We haven't, we're new. The cement is still drying on me. I'm not sure what I'm going to be. And so we're very open to correction and leading. Tell me what to believe, where to go, what to do. Should we do that? Fine, let's do it. We were so moldable because we hadn't yet decided, I will tell myself that I'm okay. The opinion of a pastor or a spiritual leader mattered because we weren't sure yet where we stood. We're learning it along the way. But now in midlife, it's like nobody tell me, what to believe about myself. I will decide whether I'm okay or not. And I'm not just criticizing it because it's annoying or ugly. I'm saying it is blocking the greatest work of God in us when we have the pride of self-righteousness keeping God's truth from our hearts. Let me give you a second thing. Pride is self-exaltation. Exaltation is not a common word in our English language, not in everyday usage. But what it means is, if you could imagine it, it's the picture of people who, if you've ever seen the old days before there were cars, servants would put a, an important person on a throne, like on a chair with large sticks, and they would hoist them up and lift them up. And then they would just kind of, you would walk through the streets carried by other servants exalted by being lifted up above others. It's that kind of picture of being lifted from a low place to a high place of honor. And pride is that which wants to lift ourselves to that place because ultimately we don't believe anyone else will do that lifting reliably. I know that self-exaltation is what Jesus is talking about in, in terms of pride because in his summary at the end of the story, he says, Here's what the story's really about, guys. Two men prayed. One we would all have regarded as a spiritual leader and the other as a wicked man. But the wicked man went home justified and the spiritual leader did not. See, this doesn't shock us because we've been in church long enough to go, of course, that's how it works, right? It's always the twist at the end. It's the opposite answer what you expect. Do you realize how shocking this was? Do you realize how shocking this was to the original audience? Because you don't say stuff like that about Pharisees. They're the guys who in our best dreams we could maybe be half of what they are in front of God. See, the Pharisee exalted himself. The problem lie not in wanting to be exalted, to be lifted up. Here's the truth. We are made in God's image. That means exaltation is in our nature. It's hard-baked into our DNA. We are not content staying in low places, being nothing. We were created in God's image to be something, to be bearers of his image, to be workers of his dominion. That's what we're made for. So when we are in the low place and we feel something in our spirit say, I want to be lifted out of this. I hate where my life is at right now. I don't like this. That is not just pride from the human heart. It is also something, an echo of what God put in us. How many of you love being the worst in every room you walk into? Yep, I'm definitely the shortest, the ugliest, the dumbest, the least educated, the poorest. I love that. Go bottom, dwellers. 
I know some of us feel like that's our sentence, right? Like, everywhere I go, I'm the lowest. But how many of you are love that, exalting it, are proud of it? Like, I have no desire to ever rise above this. I want to be the least successful pastor that has ever pastored in America. I want the smallest, most, pro- most prodigal church in the world. I want six rebellious people who never show up to be my church. See, nobody says stuff like that. And it's not just because we're full of ourselves. It's because as image bearers of God, we are meant to yearn for something more. The problem is not in wanting to be lifted up or exalted from low places, to be lifted out of the ashes to something greater. The problem lies in who does the lifting. We live in times now where the word pride, the idea of pride is no longer the chief vice. It has become the chief virtue. Isn't that true? Everything is blank pride, blank pride. The idea of being, be proud of what you are. Don't apologize for what you are. Proud, proud, proud. And I understand why that's the case. In fact, I sympathize with it. There are parts of our society that have been so historically marginalized, rejected, judged, hated, that we absolutely need to do something to empower them again. My problem is not with this idea that pride has become part of our vocabulary, but I, it's that word, that idea that really worries me a little bit because when we talk about pride, even as a necessary corrective for parts of our society that have been really pressed down, I'm not sure if pride is the best word to offer as a compensation for the abuse they have received. I think the word that we're really after when we talk about pride in that context is dignity and worth and value, not just pride. Pride is a word universally condemned in Scripture as the enemy of spiritual growth in life. Why will we offer that to the oppressed as the cure for their disease? It's just an invitation to a second disease. Hey, I'm glad you're over measles. Here's a a, a bit of smallpox for you. That's not loving even a little. What we're really after is that the human spirit cries out for dignity and value and worth, and so does God's spirit. He wants to give that to us. The problem lies in when we try to bring that for ourselves by our own self-declaration. If I say, I am proud of me, that's great. I want there to be a healthy amount of self-esteem in us. But if your entire sense of well-being and dignity, value, worth, pride rests on your self-declaration, your acceptance of yourself, let me tell you something. You are in bad shape. Because how many are the days when you don't even love you? Am I the only one in this church who has had days where I'm just so sick of me, the sight of my reflection in the mirror makes me angry? I'm done with you. You're such a loser. Stop even trying. I can't even love myself unconditionally. January 1st, I love me a lot. I'm like going to be the best person on earth. By January 3, I hate myself. I'm defeated. I have given up hope on me. If I anchor my pride, my dignity, my value, my worth on my view of myself, I am in big trouble because that view of myself will fail without fail. I guarantee you, you will come to a place where you don't even like you very much. You won't be very proud of you. If that's how I feel about me, 
How foolish would it be to then say, well, never mind me. You tell me you're proud of me. I will give all the power to other people to declare my dignity and my worth and my value. That's not good either because I promise you they will be worse to you than you will be to yourself. The problem is not in yearning for exaltation, but trusting the wrong sources and being disappointed again and again. Why can't I love me the way I want to love me? Because you can't love anyone the way you want to love. We're broken. We're fallen. If we anchor our well-being and dignity to ourselves or other broken people, what future Could there be in that? How much better then that God says, I will ascribe to you worth and value. I will tell you that you're worth something. That you're precious, beautiful, prized. And I won't change because of my mood. I won't feel differently a year from now when I have new friends and new people I love. I will always feel this way about you. I will never stop. I will never fade. I will never sleep or rest or change my mind about that. In Christ, you are my beloved. That is God's word over us. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be afraid you'll lose it. It is your gift from him for eternity without change. That is something you can anchor to. You notice that the U.S. economy is rooted in the value of gold. At least it was, right? That gold standard is important. We don't anchor our economy, the, the value of the dollar, to Bitcoin because that would just be stupid, wouldn't it? That would destroy us after a while. The point is you anchor the most important things to a source worthy that could bear the weight of all that trust independence. I would never say, Dave, you tell Dave how good Dave is. Because <laughs> tomorrow Dave's going to go, <laughs> we collectively, all three Daves, hate ourselves. <laughs> Me, myself, and I are our worst own enemies, right? Why do you think we hate being alone so much? <laughs> I think because sometimes that means we're stuck with the one person we least believe in. The problem is not in wanting to be lifted up, but in trusting people who cannot possibly bear the weight of that. Saying, you make me feel okay. And whether you say that to the reflection in the mirror or you say that to another person, you will be sorely disappointed and you will be shaken at the core. How much better? And because God loves us, okay? Because he loves us, he will not let us try to exalt ourselves. That is, in fact, what he's quoting. He's quoting Psalm th- Proverbs 3.34. Jesus quotes that. His brother James quotes that. His best friend Peter quotes that same verse from the Old Testament, Proverbs 3.34, that everyone who tries to lift themselves, God will lower, and anyone who lowers themselves, God will lift. It's not like just some kind of divine karma. What he's saying is, if you try to lift yourself... You are harming yourself. It's not going to be enough for you. And so I will rescue you from every attempt at exalting yourself by showing you that it's better when I do the lifting. When I raise you, you will be raised indeed. The depths of you will come back to life. You will feel okay again. But if you try to cover up the ashes of failure or heartbreak or tragedy by just running hard in whatever direction makes you feel better, running to other people who speak life to you, if that's your tactic, it will fall short because eventually you'll grow weary and they'll grow weary. 
Trust God who says, when I do the lifting, you will actually be lifted out of the ashes of where you are. There's a lot. I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I'll end up adding another 10 minutes to this message. So talk to me after if you want to know what that was about. I love how this guy says, thank you, God, that I am not like other people. He said it in pride, but I think you can also say that in pain. He said, I am not like other people. I'm better than them. Others say, I am not like other people. I'm misunderstood, rejected, different, less than. Either way, it's the same bad result, and that is that that person pulls away from community. Whether you stand above people or apart from them, the net effect is the same, and both are expressions of a kind of pride, because both say, I will not humble myself. I will not do what it takes to become a part of those people who have hurt me, or I will not lower myself to become a part of those I consider less than who I am. Have you know, and Can I just say, have you noticed this about yourself? That even if you're generally a pretty decent person, when you get an evite from someone you don't know that well, what's the first thing you do? Who's going to be there? I don't really know that many people other than the host. Is there anyone I'm interested in knowing or is just going to be a bunch of weirdos I don't know? And then you gauge it based on a lot of that kind of stuff. Like, is it worth it? Do I really want? And what if it's a bunch of people that are really different in ways that, you know what I'm saying? Let me give you an example. We used to have this, this thing where when our kids were little, we'd walk around the neighborhood with all the, the families while the kids trick-or-treated, the parents hung out. And what I found was I didn't like it because the guys just wanted to talk about their boathouse, their favorite strip club in Vegas, and what they can get away with behind their wives' backs. And I just couldn't, I couldn't go to any of those places. I wish I could go to the boathouse part, but I don't have a lake house. And I don't want to go to a strip club in Vegas, and I don't want to do anything behind my... So I, I was like walking around the block with a, a beer and a foam cooler thing, and going, I have no connection point. And then what I realized was next year I said, honey, you just go to... I hang out with the late. I don't want to be around those guys. What I realized I was saying in my spirit was not, I have no connection point, but they're beneath me. I don't want to hang with a bunch of dudes who have a favorite strip club in Vegas. I don't want to go to, with a guy who goes to strip club, but that, a favorite one, that's like a connoisseur of sin. I, I look at them, I go, oh, no, we're a different species. You're, uh, and I'm, uh. That's the truth about my sinful heart, is that I rejected that fellowship, not because I couldn't relate, but because I didn't want to relate. I saw them as less than, like that would be a waste of my time to hang around people. And it, God really pierced my heart about my pride. How could I think that way. But before you judge me and leave the church, look in, look in your own heart a little, because everyone's got a trigger. Oh, maybe it's not the guy who has a favorite football. Maybe it's the guy who's a know-it-all. Maybe it's the person who's the perfect mom. Everything she does is, oh, just my hair is so perfect. And you're like, you faker. No one's that good. Cut it out. I don't know what sets you off, what triggers you, but there are people you feel like you're, you're somehow never going to relate to because you don't want to. Partly because you think you're above them. Partly because you think you'll never be able to join them. 
I am not like other people, is a statement of pride, whether it's spoken in pain or out of pride. And the tragedy is that if your pride and your self-exaltation leads you to stand apart from other people, the tragic loss to us is that we need community for pride to be squashed and for humility to flourish. We need other people to tell us the truth about ourselves because our hearts, our character, not every part of it is visible to us. Do you know what your own small of your back or your butt crack looks like with your own eyes? Unless you're a contortionist, I can't actually... Eventually, I might be able to, you know. But uh, the point is there are parts of us we can't see with our own eyes. Do I have something stuck here? Unless you have a mirror everywhere you go, other people tell you what you cannot see about yourself. And when pride and self-exaltation lead you to cut the ties to others, cost is tremendous. I better hurry up and finish here because I want to give, give us time to respond to this. C.S. Lewis later writes in that same chapter, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Listen to this. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is complete. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The, the most tragic failures in Bible history come to us born out of pride. Adam and Eve lived in perfect unity with God and with each other in a garden paradise. And a snake came along and said, God's holding something back from you. They had everything they could want and need, and yet one word, he's holding something back from you. <laughs> and what did they do? All the serpent had to say was one line. If you take what he said you can't have, you will be just like him. You will be like God. What does that appeal to? Some innate sense of destiny that I'm greater than this, and I, no one will ever withhold anything from me. Cain saw his brother Abel bring an offering to God, and God was so happy. Have you ever had a sibling who always got all the praise, the favorite child? And in pride, he could not celebrate his brother. He could not learn, what did you do, Abel, that I didn't do? I want that kind of approval. Instead, he saw his brother's gain as his loss. He saw his brother's glory as his shame. He, he saw a zero-sum game. It was a contest to him. And he could not celebrate his brother's win without seeing it as his own loss. And so he committed the first murder. And after he had killed his brother and buried him, and God said, where is he? He coldly said, what am I supposed to be my brother's keeper now? What leads a person to feel that way? We can go on example after example. The Tower of Babel was built on this motto. This slogan, we will make a name for ourselves. But we don't have to look that far back to see how much misery is caused in human lives by the pride of other people. Amen? Think about the scars you have 
from the people who have hurt you the most, people whose wounds you still are recovering from. And tell me if you cannot find a root of pride in that other person that no matter how much you cried out in distress, they would not see you with compassion. No matter how much you said, please stop doing this to me, they said, I'm justified in doing what I do to you. I'm better than you are. You are less than me. Think about how much misery has been caused in your own life by the pride of other people, and you'll understand why pride is identified again and again by God as the enemy of spiritual life and vitality. I wonder if we can dare to ask this question, how much misery are you causing because you are so proud? Because you justify yourself and you lift yourself up and you set yourself apart. How much has your pride been costing the people closest to you? Do you hear beneath the words the deep distress they're trying to communicate to you? Do you hear it at all? Or do you just hear it as an irritating, annoying, nagging? Pride is a silent killer. Many have called it the cancer of the soul. And by the time you're in stage four in your soul, it is often too late to say, what am I going to do? It is better if you can, in faith today, invite God to reveal and expose in you the sin of pride. Those times when you want to justify yourself, to point to the good you've done and say, isn't that enough? Leave me alone. to say, I need to be lifted up, but I trust no one to do that lifting but me. There's a much better way, the way of Jesus. The humility that Jesus demonstrated, he only could do so because he was secure that God had given him his worth, his acceptance. We can't be humble truly until we know that someone greater than us has accepted and loved us, has spoken dignity and No one will be humble at the cost of their own sense of dignity and value and worth. No one. You can fake it, but you won't sustain it unless you truly do have a sense of worth that comes from God. And Jesus trusted his father to do the lifting. And how gloriously was he lifted. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If he does lift him, you will be lifted up. I'm going to invite us just to take a minute This is not an easy thing to respond to because, like we've already established, pride is hardest to spot in ourselves. Would you just give God a moment of opening your heart and saying, will you show me where pride has taken root, where it's pulled me above or apart from others, made me defensive, self-justifying, 
I'm going to give us a minute to do that in, in our own words, from our own hearts. And then we'll close with one final song. And we'll have an announcement. We'll end our service together. Would you just go to God right now in this minute? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.